power in the name of Jesus and it's it's fueled by what he accomplished at Calvary on the cross and it was it was the, the night before at the last supper when Jesus was with his disciples and he told them what was going to happen what he was going to do and he also gave them instruction for moving forward and and he related it to our our habits of eating and drinking because as often as we eat and as often as we drink it's important that we too do this and at the, the center of it it was remember me is what he said remember me remember what I'm about to do and remember that it was for you and so he took the bread at the last supper and he broke it and he said eat of it for this is my body which is broken for you and so they took and they ate And then he, he took the, the wine and he said that the wine, this is my blood, it's poured out for you, poured out for, for the forgiveness of sin. And so he reminded him, every time you drink, do this 
in remembrance of me. And so they took the wine and they drank it. And so Father, we thank you that, that you are just so mindful of us. That even as Jesus was headed to the cross, that he was still thinking of us. He was thinking about our future. And that he gave us this, this ordinance of communion that as often as we eat and drink, we should remember you. We should remember your love. That we would remember that the body of Jesus was beaten and battered in our place so that we could receive healing. And that all of his blood poured out on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and right standing with God. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the unimaginable depth of, of love and blessing that that draws us into. And we just declare that over each and every one of us here today. As we speak the name of Jesus over everyone here today, we thank you that you've confirmed this covenant in and through Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit into a cold open here. It was uh, at my request. Not sure why, but we're doing it that way. <laughs> um, so today is Palm Sunday. And uh, so Palm Sunday it marks the beginning of Holy Week, right? So Holy Week being uh, the week where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he, he rides in on the donkey and then come Good Friday, he is crucified and then on Easter Sunday, he resurrects from the dead. So that's Holy Week. Today marks the beginning of it. And um, I, I particularly like Palm Sunday because uh, in my eyes, it's, it's kind of like the first New Testament example of a beginning of revival. And I think there's a lot that we could glean from the scriptures when we read about uh, not just the, the triumphal entry, but also as we go through the, the, whole, um, the whole Holy Week. Like if you take Matthew chapter 21, where we're working out of today, read the rest of it today at home, and then read chapter 22. And then every day, now till next Sunday, read one chapter. And next week on Sunday, when you get here, you'll be at Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is risen, and we'll all celebrate Easter together. So there's a lot in that time frame to glean. Um, but specifically today, we're going to look at how it relates to revival. And we're going to stay inside of chapter 21 uh, the first half of it anyway. But I think there's a lot that we could see there because like I said, I believe that Palm Sunday kind of initiates the first example of New Testament revival. And there's been a lot of talk of revival lately, uh, especially with, you know, in the, the past, uh, I don't know, month or, or two, it, I'm not sure how long ago it was now, but they had the Asbury revival. Raise your hand if you heard of that, right? So it all started at like a, a regular uh, church service at Asbury College, and one student, all it took was one student, 
got up and they were just seeking after God. They felt convicted to pursue God and they went up and they just started to confess sin in front of everyone there. And then it led this domino effect. And before you knew it, it was like a, a week and some days went by and it was this nonstop service and it drew national attention from national people going in there and then little different pop-ups of it started happening at all these different uh, colleges and schools, which was really cool because it was affecting our, our younger generation. And so I, I totally believe that we are in the, the beginning stages of revival here. And, and the one thing that I don't want to do is I don't want to become a stumbling block to revival and I certainly don't want to stumble over revival myself. I want all of what God has, and I want to just flow in it and go with it. Amen. So when we look at the, uh, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus, as it's called when we celebrate Palm Sunday, there, there's really two types of people in, in the whole story. There's the people in the beginning at the triumphal entry when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and they're yelling, Hosanna, and they're laying down their coats, and they're putting down palm trees so that Jesus could, could walk across them, and they're honoring him. And then there's a second type of people who five short days later are yelling, crucify him, which leads to the crucifixion. And so I think that when we read through these scriptures here today, we'll be able to, to glean what was it about those two types of people that one was led to worship Jesus and welcome him, while the other group of people were shouting for his crucifixion. So we're going to read out of, again, Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to read here to set the stage. And then after that, I'm going to go back to it, and we're going to read some of the following verses. When they neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage on Mount Olives, Jesus sent two disciples with these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as, Jeru er, as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So, Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We, we thank you for having this time, this morning, earmarked in your plans for eternity. And we pray that you would speak, Lord. It wouldn't be me, but it would be you speaking through me to give your people a, an understanding, a revelation, give us wisdom and knowledge that it would propel us into the destiny that you have set before us. We pray you would bless this time, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hot take, 
I'm going to stand up here in this church and I'm going to declare that religion is the enemy of revival. All right. You guys are like, yeah, right on. Very cool. All right. So religion is the enemy of revival. And we're going to unpack what I mean by this. Because when I say religion, I don't mean honest people honestly chasing after God. That's not how I define it. And I don't think that's even how most people define it. Um, but to, let's back up a little bit. Let's go. So we're going to fast forward through Holy Week, and we're going to get to Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit to the New Testament church. And Jesus even told the disciples, it's better that I go so that I will send the advocate or the helper. So Holy Spirit comes. He's our helper. He's our advocate. He creates a one-way um, a, a lane or a highway for us to commune with God without needing intercession of another person. And so we have the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, we don't have to cast lots to try and figure out what God wants because that's how they used to do it. They would do it by chance. Um, now we ourselves have the personal, um, the, the benefit of just going right to God and he will speak to us. And he will help us in deciding whatever it is that we're asking or inquiring about. So the Holy Spirit gives us revelation straight from God. In revelation, it is God-given, and it fosters a relationship with God. When you have that revelation, that is you communing with God. There's a relationship happening, and you, you take that revelation, and you... you foster it and you grow and you continue to get new revelation and every time you get revelation it reveals to you more about who God is about his character his plans and purposes for you and it it strengthens that connection religion is is man-made and it hinders a relationship with God because it it removes the revelation and it starts to become legalistic and it becomes do this don't do that and you forget that there's a relationship value there that's missing when it comes down to just do and don't. So all that to, to say that revelation is what we need to be after, the specific revelation, but we can't hinder ourselves by building up these walls of religion that prevent anything else than that revelation but, you know, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, it says there's nothing new under the sun. And so this has happened before, and it's more likely going to happen again. But we see it in the, the Holy Week story. We see that here was Jesus, the Messiah, and he was coming into the holy city, the very people who had built up uh, a, an entire people, an entire religion, a faith-based group of people that were both, uh, they were a faith group and they were a geopolitical group of people, built up this great big kingdom. And they had this revelation of the Messiah, but the revelation that they got stuck on was that he was going to free them from their oppressors. And now that is true. Jesus, he does free you from oppression, and not yet did he fulfill that for Israel, but they were so single-minded focused on this one revelation of who the Messiah would be that when he actually came riding in on a donkey into their city, a lot of them missed it. And they rejected him 
because they were stuck on one revelation. So uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of, him be, of his being. So Jesus is the complete and full revelation of God. He is God in human form, yet his own people inside of God's holy city rejected him because of their religion. I believe that Palm Sunday it kind of initiates the first New Testament example of a revival coming forth. And so as we go through, I'm going to point out some things that I think will, will help us to understand, are we, are we going to be a part of revival or are we going to be a stumbling block to revival? And so when we read through the rest of the verses in Matthew chapter 21, uh, we see that the first thing Jesus is, he does is he, he goes into the temple. So it picks up in verse 12. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So I believe, you know, I believe all throughout Scripture, everything is very intentional. That There's so many layers and depth to the Scriptures that God gives us that it's a reason, and there's stuff for us to glean from it. And I don't think it's by accident that the first thing God did when he got, well, Jesus, who is God, right? The first thing Jesus did when he got to Jerusalem was he went into the temple and the first thing that he did was he, he, uh, he messed with some people, kind of. I mean, he messed up the, the charades they had going. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it says that judgment begins at the house of God. So if we want revival for the world, we have to understand that we need to be reformed ourselves. That if revival sweeps and it goes across the globe and all these people are now on fire for God and wanting more of God, the first place they're going to go is to the church. And if they get to the church and they look more like Jesus than the rest of the church does, it's not going to help very much. So reformation begins with the church because the church, it has to be healthy and it has to be ready. So the first thing that Jesus does, it says that he overturns two types of people. He overturns, and it says in the second part of verse 12, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So money changers is pretty straightforward. It's the people who are there simply for the money. They give and take, give and take, and they're going to take home part of that profit. So the money changers who were in the temple, Jesus, he overturned their tables and then the second part of that was those who were selling doves. So if you look at symbolism in the scriptures, the dove is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit, right? 
So it says there were people there who were selling doves. And it really makes me think about in the book of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 23, Jesus is telling the disciples, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And I'm going to tell you, that particular verse really hit hard when I read it for the first, like, ever. I mean, it still hits hard because it's such a warning. It highlights that there are people within the church who are selling doves. Maybe they're operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're casting out demons and they're prophesying. But there's no real relationship there. And they're doing it for the profit, not because they're trying to advance the kingdom. And so Jesus, he overturns, it says, the seats of those selling doves. And seats could be symbolically taken as a platform. So there's money changers, and then there's people who are selling the things of God for a profit, and Jesus overturns both of them. And then in the first part of that verse, it says that he drives out these two types of people. It says, Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. So it wasn't just the people who were, who were selling, but it was also the people who were buying it. And so I believe that revival, it will expose the superficial faith that is driven by profit. So sellers, again, that's the easy part. It's the, the church that's driven by money, but also the buyers, the, the people who attend for reasons that are other than God. So maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's a sense of uh, moral superiority or, or self-righteousness. Uh, maybe it's because you go and you get fed a, a watered-down message that doesn't challenge you to grow in God and to be the best version of yourself, and it tolerates sin. Because unfortunately, there's some people who go to church and they go just for the music, and that is different than worship. When we have our worship team up here and we're worshiping, just because you're listening doesn't mean that you're worshiping. You might just be enjoying the music. I don't mean you guys because you guys are great. But in the, in the sense of I'm speaking to the broader church as a whole, right? Um, some people go to church just to hear a, a specific person. Maybe they like their style. They like the way they, they teach the person themselves entertaining. But they don't really care much for the message and what the intention is for their hearing. Uh, and some people go to church just to say that they went to church. Just to be able to check it off the box, say they have perfect attendance, and they think that attendance is going to improve their relationship with God. Kind of like they, you know, they suffered through Rob's sermon and, and you know, that's good enough for at least this week, right? So, the, and, and to be honest with you, some churches prefer it this way. Some churches, they just want that. And, and I don't mean to pick on the church either because this is reflective of an issue with humanity at large. It's not just the church, but we see this throughout the world in any area, in any arena. Uh, because we were made to worship. God made each and every one of us to worship him. And if we're not worshiping him, we're going to find something to put in his place. And so if we 
we were, whatever's most important to you is what you worship, right? So if it's money, maybe it's fame, fortune, uh, it could be status, maybe it's a career or a job. And everything you do, you are sold out completely to advance that aspect of your life. And if we're not careful, when we worship other things that serve our own self-influence or self-interest, it fuels greed, and greed corrupts. And that's why I believe in Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples when he's about to send them out and commission them, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he's saying that the world is full of, of places and people like this. And so it's kind of like that, that saying, like, if you want to catch a thief, you have to think like a thief. He's telling us we got to be clever so that we can understand the plans and the tactics of, of the enemy, but be harmless. Don't, don't pursue it. Don't be like them. Just be able to understand it and discern it. Use, the, use it for good and not evil. So the first thing that Jesus did when he goes in to Jerusalem, and I believe the first thing that happens in a time of revival, is that Jesus, he will clean out the temple so that revival is not hindered. So that's the first thing he does. He drives out the money changers and, and he, he cleans out the temple so revival can be or will not be hindered. And then we get into verse 18 and it shows Jesus going up to this fig tree and he's hungry and he wants some fruit, right? And it doesn't have any fruit. So I'm just going to read that. It says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And I remember reading that for like the first time. I was like, man, that poor fig tree. Like it wasn't even in season, right? It was just hanging out, like providing shade. And, and Jesus cursed it because there was no fruit on it. Um, but when you think about it symbolically, again, the symbolism that's there, the, the fig tree is oftentimes related to Israel, the people of Israel, God's chosen people from the Old Testament. And, and the thing with Israel is they had this covenant with God that God said, I will, I will bless you, I will take care of you, I will be your God, I will meet all your needs. And all that you have to do is have a relationship with me, which means that you're going to live by my statutes. You're going to live pure. You're going to live righteous. You're going to live holy. And when you do that, all of the other nations of the world are going to see you and how you live. And they're going to know that you are living as my people. And so they see you and it should be a reflection of me, is what God says. God wanted Israel to be a, a people that would reflect God's character so that all the other nations of the world could see it and the other nations of the world would be able to understand and have some revelation about who the true God was because there was a lot of paganism going around. So um, that is why Israel, uh, that is the covenant with Israel, and the fig tree was often symbolic of Israel. And when we talk about fruit, the symbolism of fruit, we get from you know Galatians chapter 5, it says that, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so Jesus goes up to the fig tree, or Israel, right? And he sees that there's no fruit. 
Jesus goes to Israel and he sees that there's no love, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no patience, there's no kindness, there's no goodness, there's no faithfulness, there's no gentleness, there's no self-control. And Israel had failed to hold up their end of the bargain with God. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament, they didn't do their part. And so what we see happen here, Jesus foreshadows what comes next. And he says to the, the disciples when they inquire about how did the fig tree dry up like that, he says, um, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive it. So Jesus is foreshadowing, he's illustrating this transfer of authority that's about to take place from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant with Israel into the New Testament or the New Covenant with the New Testament church. He's telling this to his disciples. The disciples were the ones who would go out and they would start to share the gospel. They were the founders, in a sense, of the New Testament church. And so he's highlighting this transfer of authority from Israel into the New Testament church. He's saying that they no longer bear fruit, but you will bear fruit, and you could do miraculous things just as I did, and even more so, so long as you do it in my name and you believe it, you will receive it. So the second thing that God does in times of revival, after he clears out the temple, he will appoint faithful leaders who will advance the kingdom. They won't be concerned about advancing themselves about advancing their bank accounts. They will be concerned about advancing the kingdom, about advancing God principles, and seeing God's will done here on the earth. And so later, or next in the story, we see Jesus, and the authority of Jesus is being questioned by the, the chief priests and the elders of the, the temple. And so that picks up in verse 23, and it says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But, what if, but if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry, uh, Matthew Henry has some really good commentary on this, and he, he talks about how the, the Pharisees, they didn't really care about Jesus' answer. They were just trying to stop him one way or another. Excuse me. So they had already pre-planned how they were going to do so, dependent on how he answered. No matter which way Jesus answered, they were going to try and prosecute him for it. So the first way they would do it um, they, well, they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And if Jesus said nothing at all, there's a, a Latin term, uh, nihil de sit, 
and it literally means he says nothing. And it's a legal judgment pronounced against someone who's ref who refuses to testify, and it implies that they are guilty and they don't want to condemn themselves by providing testimony. So the Pharisees, they wanted, if Jesus said nothing to them at all, he didn't answer the question, they were going to try and convict them on that. And then if Jesus answered and he said, well, I do this by the authority of God, then they would demand a sign and demand a miraculous event take place to validate that God was behind them. And now that seems like no problem, right? Because Jesus performs so many miracles all the time. Like, it shouldn't be an issue. But we see that in Matthew chapter 16, just previously, they demanded the same thing from Jesus and he refused to do it because he wasn't going to play their game. So they were expecting Jesus to turn them down yet again and refuse to provide any miracle. And in which case, they would say that he was blasphemous, that he was speaking for God and as if he were God, but not providing any proof of authority. And so Jesus, knowing that they were trying to trick him, he turns the tables on them and he uses their own tactic against them and he asks them, tell me about John the Baptist. And so they don't answer honestly because they know if they do one way or another, they're, they're going to expose themselves. So John the Baptist, he did not grow up going to seminary and he didn't hang out with all the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he was an outsider. He was outside of their religion. But what he did was pure and it was revelation from God, but they refused to acknowledge it. And so they rejected him. But the people... They believed in what John was doing and what he had to say, and they didn't want to lose their influence with the people, so they didn't want to criticize them. So Jesus asks them, he tells them, if you answer me one way or another, then I'll answer you. And they didn't think, well, what do we really believe? But they thought, what is the best look for us? What is the best way for us to maintain our status, the best way to maintain our, our, our importance in society here? And so Jesus, they didn't answer him. They wouldn't answer Jesus, and so Jesus says, well, by, by your own standards, I won't answer you either then. And their answer was based not on truth or honesty, but it exposed their hypocrisy. Uh, worship team, you can come on up. And so the third thing that Jesus did in this time of revival is that he convicts us that we are all hypocrites. And I said that intentionally. I didn't say he convicts us that the people in the church are hypocrites. He doesn't convict us that, that that pastor that we don't like is a hypocrite. If revival, real true revival is going to take place, Jesus will convict all of us that we're hypocrites. And, you know, it's, it's so easy for me to read and have the, the hindsight, and I read about the, the religious leaders of the day, and I'm like, man, how could you do that? Like, this is Jesus. He's the Son of God. Like, he, he was there specifically for you. He was your Messiah. And I sit there, and I want to criticize, but when I'm real with myself, I realize that I do the same thing. I, just this past week, <laughs> my, my, one of my kids, it was this, like, disciplinary moment that just keeps happening over and over and over, and I'm trying to figure out how to deal with it and how to handle it. And, and I go to God, and I'm just like, God, this is exhausting. What do I do? Just show me. How do I handle this? What is the answer? And he didn't give me an answer right away, but you know what he did? 
in the, the quiet time where I'm sitting and I'm, I'm waiting to receive, he starts to remind me of all these times in my past where I did the same thing. And it wasn't to make me feel guilty, but what it did was he allowed me to have some more compassion. He allowed me to have some more patience. He allowed me to have some more understanding. And so I'm telling you, I, it worked. And I no longer felt defeated, and I no longer felt like I was failing as a parent. And then I felt God speak into me again, and he said, you want to know what to do? Just keep doing. Just don't give up. Keep showing them Jesus. Keep being the example. Keep loving them. Keep nurturing them. It's not going to solve itself all in one day or in one moment. It's a consistency thing. It's day in. It's day out. Just keep doing. Keep being. Keep trying. Just don't give up. And, you know, I... <laughs> I started thinking about it, and I got my own walls of religion that I built up. I, I go to work, and I talk to someone to see, how's your day going? And they're like, oh, not so bad. And I feel God speak into me, and he says, pray with them. And I say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, man, and I walk away. And as I'm walking away, God says, I didn't say pray for them. I said pray with them. And then my religion, it, it starts saying, yeah, but, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that at work, or maybe it won't be well-received. And I start making all these rules on the, how I should reflect God towards other people. Like I know better than God. It's my religion, these made up reasons to not do what I believe God is telling me to do. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8-9, through 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 3, 23 and verse 24, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And I could go verse after verse, but the truth of the matter is that the entire Bible is an example of people who fall short, and God is there to pick them up. You know, the, the definition of, of mercy, it's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In other words, it's withholding deserved punishment. And when you think about it, the entire universe runs on mercy because nothing deserves the God who runs it, the God who sustains it. He is so pure. He is whole, holy. Everything about him is without fault. And we don't deserve him, yet here we are. Every day, he's, he's pursuing us relentlessly. Relentlessly pursuing us. And in Romans 5, verse 8, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that right there, to me, it holds the key that you know, he, he wrote in on Palm Sunday to a established place that was supposedly waiting for him, waiting for him. And they didn't recognize him when they see him. And the very same people that he came to save, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. 
Yet while we were still sinners, he died for us. And when he was hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I read that and I'm like, I'm pretty sure they knew what they were doing. You don't accidentally drive nails through someone onto a a cross and, and put them up for everyone to see. And those same people, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He still loved them. He still wanted the best for them. And when I let that hit me and it hits my heart, and it is that love, that passion, draws me not to perform, but just want to be my best for a pure and holy God who loves me just as I am. And so I don't do this and and don't do that because I'm told to. I'm just trying to chase after him. I'm just pursuing him. And that to me, that's the beauty of this week, of Holy Week. And I think that when we see it for what it is, it's the beginning of revival. And like I said, I I believe that that revival is, is here, it's coming and it's gonna pick up and nothing's gonna stop it. And I just wanna position myself in a way that I'm not a hindrance, that I don't turn into a stumbling block or that I don't fall on my face myself. So Father God, we we just thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word. And that is my prayer, Lord, that we would forget about everything but you. All the the pressure from the outside, all of our our preconceived notions and and whatever we think we know, it would be replaced by just your love, your love that washes over us and just it transforms us, it changes us day in and day out, that we would see that revival, it starts first with us and then it flows outward. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the passion that drove him to the cross and and for all that was accomplished there. And Lord, I just, no other words that I I could say would, would make you any greater. So I just pray that you would move upon the hearts and the minds of of everyone here, that they wouldn't look back to, to me or the words I said, but they would only see you, see the truth of who you are, that you would change and transform them from the inside out and propel them into the, the, the beautiful future that you have in store for them. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, thank you so much, guys. Uh, we may have ran a little bit later, but uh, I'd like to pray over the, the offering real quick, if you don't mind. And then um, I'm not sure if we have announcements, but if they are after, I'm sure they'll be on the screen and I'll do my best to roll with it. So Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you that, that in our giving, that you see that and you see that it's just an extension of, of who we're chasing after, that Lord, we, we know you have given and provided everything. We give back just a portion of it, just to out of love. I don't ask that anyone give out of anything other than just love and gratitude. So Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you would take it, you would multiply it, you would send it and, and have uh, effects for it that we could only dream of, that would reach the lost, that it would advance your kingdom and that 
people would come to know and experience Jesus through it. So we thank you for it all, Lord. All of this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.